let us open with prayer uh, and open up this box of, of goodies and see what's what's on the inside. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We adore you, O Christ, and we praise you because by your holy cross you have redeemed the world. Jesus, you truly have redeemed us by the sacrifice you made on the cross, and you greatly desire to eat the Passover with your disciples the night before you suffered, to give that same gift to all people for all generations. And so help us to unpack the wonders of the Mass so that as we stay true to you, the Word, and in the sacraments, we might receive you and receiving you, find our way to eternal life. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So tonight, the big item is really to walk through the Mass. Originally, we were going to do this in the church itself and in the Mass itself. So we could pray as we go along through each part by part. But this uh, setup, you know, they're praying the rosary for there in the church. Uh, this setup, though, will give us a chance as we walk through, you know, people can raise their hand and interrupt the priest. You know, you don't really get to do that a whole lot, you know. So uh, feel free, again, as questions uh, pop up, I'm going to try to walk through slowly, reveal just the things that I'm thinking about as I'm saying the Mass, and maybe uh, some things that uh, you can just attach to as we go through the Mass, which is the mystery of our salvation. So... Again, if you're standing, chairs are on their way. So, um, but in the meantime, we like the ancient Christians praying, standing, Lord, like this. A little show and tell first. Uh, this, uh, me and my dad actually built when I was ordained. It is a traveling altar. It's one, you know, tables are way too small to really be an altar. The the thing you see in the church is more than just a table, Lord. It's it's a place of sacrifice. So it needs to come up right to the <laughs> So then you open it up. Great. They, they stay like that. Stop it here. So this is what we're going to use as all. And the first thing we'll do to also make it look more like an altar is we're going to put on a wedding gown because that's kind of what this is actually altar the rock very much represents christ the body of christ the church and so that gets dressed as if wedding nice place you know beautiful bride and you know that's the meaning as well you know when the priest goes up to the altar at the very start of Mass, he will kiss the altar. Very nice bride. Never talks back to me. <laughs> but but for real, it describes that nuptial meaning of the Mass. The Mass is the wedding. Heaven on earth. Heaven comes down. God comes down and kisses earth. Kisses that motion of love to each and every one of us. So this gets dressed up. As if in a wedding garment. And then we'll put everything on the altar. We'll come to it in its own time. Start with that. Oh, the cross, of course. Now, there's always a cross on every altar, right? And it makes sense that this altar will be connected to the cross of Christ. Uh, actually, when we think about the Last Supper, right? Jesus institutes the Eucharist. When he gives us the Mass, there's sort of a fun little tidbit. Usually we think about that happening on Holy Thursday. Thursday. And then the crucifixion happening on Friday, the next day. That's not the way in the Jewish mind they would have conceived of the days. The Jewish world, actually, the day begins at sundown. So when Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper, he's actually celebrating it on the same day as the crucifixion. It's just in the evening, the night before, but it actually counts as the same day. That's why we can go to Mass on Saturday evening, and it counts for Sunday. It's the same day as Sunday in the Jewish mind, the mind of the people of God. So there's an intimate connection 
between the table, the Last Supper, and the sacrifice of the cross. Now, the cross will face the priest here. This is sort of my cross, I suppose. But I'm, I'm always locked in, right, on what's truly happening here. Usually there will be a big old cross behind me so that all of you can also be locked in. The mystery of the cross. Let's see. What else? Ah, candles. And depending, you know, last supper, wedding feast, it's also a romantic dinner. Depending on how romantic it is, sometimes you just have two candles. Kind of a regular daily mass a lot of times. And for more, you know, bigger feasts like Sundays, you might see four candles lit. Usually do two by the tabernacle, two on the altar, that's four. And then, you know, for the really, you know, Valentine's Day anniversary, Easter, for example, you'll see a whole six. It's just this growing amount of lights, right? It's this grow, growing amount of revelation of the mystery happening before. And one thing, one thing, thing about candles as well. Love burning candles in the church. You might see those areas, right, where people will light a candle in between mass or right before mass so other people can see. Um, one of the reasons that's there, right, is so that other people know that someone out there is in need of prayers. Whenever you walk in and you see those candles, candle always sort of represents keeping vigil, keeping watch. So we keep vigil, we keep watch for our brothers and sisters, we pray for them. So candles on the altar as well, you know, this is a place to keep watch for the Lord. Stand here, watchful, waiting for, for his work. And as well, a candle is sort of a sacrifice, you know, it you light it on fire, just like the Holocaust of the old testaments that were totally burnt and offered to the Lord. The candle is lit and it burns up, it disappears. But in disappearing, you know, we understand just like our prayers disappear when we say them, they're taking up to the Lord. So they kind of remind us again of that sort of language of sacrifice, which we'll unpack a little more. And uh, finally, yeah. Yes. And the bread, all of which we'll talk about in due time. <laughs> so uh, in order to walk through the mass, we're actually going to start on the inside of numbered these uh, on page three, page three. Anyone else need some of these? Let's take all of them. And... On page three, there's a excerpt from St. Justin Martyr. He was an early martyr of the church. No, his parents did not name him Martyr. That would have been very coincidental, right? Uh, he was nicknamed that because he did go to his death, defense of the Christian faith. And he's writing... An apology here. Uh, a lot of the early church fathers wrote apologies, and it's not what you, it sounds like. It's not saying sorry or something. An apology is sort of a profession of faith. It's telling people who are not Christian, you know, what the Christian faith is about. So he's speaking, you know, in this letter to his kind of pagan friends. You know, he was a very famous orator and philosopher in his own day, and then he became a Christian. So he's of explaining to his non-Christian friends and even up to the emperor you know, what it means that he is a Christian now. There's all these accusations. The Christians are eating the flesh of a dead man. You know, cannibalism in their secret hidden rites. And they teach, you know, to, you know, curse the emperor and, you know, not follow in the ways of, of Rome, right? So very serious accusations. He's defending that. He says, no, we're a community based on love based on our Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is what he says, you know, from very early on, you know, 150s AD, kind of just after the time of first the, the apostles and then kind of that first generation of Christians. He's pretty much a second generation Christian. This is what he says. We, after we have thus washed him who has been convinced and has assented to our teaching, bring him to the place where those who are called brethren are assembled. So all that right there is talking about someone who's been baptized and brought into the assembly, which 
in the language he's writing, you know, would mean the church, into the church. In order that we may offer hearty prayers in common. That's kind of a fun definition of what we do on Sunday. Offering hearty prayers in common for ourselves and for all the baptized persons and for all others in every place. That we may be counted worthy now that we have learned the truth by our works also to be good, found good citizens and keepers of the commandments. So that we may be saved with an everlasting salvation. So they're talking about, no, like this liturgy is going to make us good people, good citizens in this world, but more than that, good citizens for heaven as well. There's nothing in direct contradiction between, you know, Caesar and God, between the states and the faith. So having ended the prayers, we salute one another with a kiss. Called elsewhere in his apology, the kiss of peace, a sign of peace. There is then brought to the president, the presider of the brethren, bread and a cup of wine mixed with water. And he, taking them, gives praise and glory to the Father of the universe, through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and offers thanks at considerable length for our being counted worthy to receive these things at his hands. So offers thanks. Or literally, Eucharistia, the, the Eucharist, this bread and wine. And when he has concluded the prayers of thanksgiving, all the people present express their assent by saying, Amen. This word, Amen, answers in the Hebrew language to Genoito, so be it. Leave, I consent, I assent to this, this is true. And when the president has given thanks, there it is again, and all the people have expressed their assent, those who are called by us deacons give to each of those present to partake of the bread and wine mixed with water, over which the thanksgiving was pronounced. And to those who are absent, they carry away a portion. We still do that. We send acolytes and priests out into the, the neighborhood, you know, bring the Eucharist to those who are homebound. And this food is called among us, Eucharistia, Eucharist, of which no one is allowed to partake, but the man who believes that the things which we teach are true and who has been washed with the washing that is for the remission of sins and unto regeneration and who is so living as Christ has enjoyed. So again, there from the very beginning, this awareness that this Eucharist is different. And in order to partake of it, you have to be born anew, you have to have taken on a whole new identity in Christ have to live like Christ. And if you haven't been living like Christ, you know, to return to that remission of sins. For not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ our Savior, having been made flesh by the word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise, have we been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word, and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished, is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. So all that to say, it's a nice witness to the early tradition of the Christians, you know, taking that faith given by the apostles, given by Christ, all the way to the night when he was betrayed, feeding himself, feeding his body and blood for us in this sacrifice. This is cross this is where redemption this is where salvation is found and from the very beginning the christians understood that to be so so if you turn to, to the next page you can begin following along a couple charts give try to give somewhat a outline of you know what the mass looks like and what the year looks like Really, throughout the entire year, we celebrate Christ. You know, from December through May, we cover the whole story of Jesus, you know, his advent, you know, the anticipation, waiting for him to come, Christmas, his coming, Epiphany, when Jesus is made manifest and he starts to teach his disciples and call people to himself, we enter Lent, you know, that time leading up to Jerusalem, and the Easter and Pentecost, the time of spirits, which breaks us into the time of the church. So we get, enter ordinary time, it's called. Ordinary, not because it's got nothing exciting about it, but rather it orders us 
Hey, it sets us in, in our own lives in that right direction. It ordains us, orders us in the same way as this first half of the year ordered us to the life of Christ. Ordinary time then sets that pattern into our own lives. We are ordered to that pattern that was established in the first half of the year. So the year goes through a cycle like that. We'll come back to this if we have time, but really I want to spend most of the time walking through the mosque. So turn it over right here, introductory rites. This is the real meat and potatoes of, of tonight. So a mass actually begins for the priest before mass actually begins. He has to get vested. The first thing he does is he washes his hands. Uh, it's actually in the right, so germs and stuff. So, but it makes sense, right? There's no time. <laughs> it makes sense. We're gonna we're gonna find a lot of illusions in the mass. So Last supper, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, the first thing he did with his disciples was he washed them. Now their feet, maybe not their hands, but still that that washing actually refers back in the Old Testament to the washing of Moses with Aaron, his brother, and his sons. He washed them before he would ordain them to the priesthood. So Jesus and the washing of the feet, there's an ordination right that's really happening there. So the priest sort of returns to that. He washes his hands, which were anointed by the bishop to serve in this capacity. And so kind of renews that priestly identity that he, you know, was ordained with. Date of his ordination. Washes his hands. And, and then we then we proceed. Uh, first, you don't have to memorize all these names, but this is called an anise. And a, there's a prayer that goes along with each of these items. Prayer that goes along with this one. Do this correctly every day. <laughs> prayer that goes along with this one is something like, you know, I just know it. Uh, <laughs> Protect my head, put on me the armor of salvation to guard my thoughts from the arrows of the evil one. It's it's very biblical, you know, kind of putting on the whole armor of God, St. Paul talks about. So this uh, amos, it's sort of the same item that soldiers would wear underneath their armor to kind of keep them from, you know, like the metal plate from like cutting their neck off. So uh, it's kind of putting, starting to put on the, uh, the whole armor of God, I guess, is the idea. Puts on the alb means white, and this is the same garment technically that all of us had put on us when we were baptized. This is the cloth of the baptismal dignity of, of every Christian. You know, we've our robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's what the priest prays about. You know, wash me again in your body and blood, you know, cleanse me of all my sins. And then with that, he puts on his, his belt. Now, you know, Jesus told his disciples not to wear a money belt. So even from that, there's this tradition of just using, instead of like a belt where you can carry pockets for money, you just use a rope. Well, a lot of the religious as well will use one of these. It's just called a cincture, which means belt, but it also sort of represents the promises we've made, you know, of poverty. No, no money. Chastity, right? I've locked myself off, you know? No one can get to me, right? And in obedience, I go where I'm led. You know? <laughs> I, I, I am now in the hands of God. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Jew, the Jews would wear tassels all the time. Uh, it wasn't exactly like this. It would have been more attached to their outer clothes. And those tassels would represent all of the commandments. You know, there'd be like 613 threads or something like that. I don't know how many. Be nice if there were 613, something like that. It, it, they surrounded themselves with the commandments, right? With the word of God. The commandments were protection for a wall, a shield around them to keep them on the right path, right? So I suppose, you know. That could definitely be a connection. So with that, I put on the stole. 
And this one is used whenever a priest is doing sacraments, whatever the sacraments may be. And one of the things it represents that I really like, you know, these would typically be made out of wool, heavy wool even. And when you think about that, they, they're sort of the form of a sheep then, a sheep that's been draped over the shoulders of the priest, right? And so there's that famous image of Jesus, the good shepherd. That's actually one of the first images that the early church clung to, you know, even before the crucifix was Jesus, the good shepherd, the sheep over his shoulders, bringing them home. So I'll pull the sheep in and get ready to, again, whatever, whenever the priest does sacraments, he's really, you know, going after the lost sheep, bringing them back into the Lord's fold. And finally, the uh, chasuble called. Um, the, the word is related to, to the uh, idea of a tent. So you can kind of imagine why, right? In, the, in a little tent. Okay, ram. Uh, you know, typical garb for the time in a way, and yet sort of made timeless by the fact that Jesus is the word who made his dwelling among us, who, who pitched his tent in our midst, you know, the tent of meeting is the place where Israel, you know, had encounter with God, you know, from the time of Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, you know, all the way through the desert into the Promised Land, you know, the temple became the place where, you know, we met God, and now, you know, we have kind of the new tents, not myself, say, but, you know, Christ who comes to meet us in the Mass is a place where we encounter God. So this sort of tent dwelling just establishes that Jesus made his dwelling among us. So with that, we go up to the altar of God. Oh, it's going to ask? Yes. So, um, yeah, colors just Always mean things, right? Kids will always. And just like, you know, the seasons of the world, there's different colors associated with each one, right? Uh, Wintertime, white, maybe the white of snow, maybe the grayness of the sky, you know, in the fall, the oranges, the browns, the reds, you know, springtime. All the colors of the flowers, the summer green. So, so also with liturgical seasons, you know, there's there's sort of a pattern. We're going to see that a lot where so much has gone into mass to get us from, you know, where we were to where we are now. It's gone through so many stages. Some of those stages involve using creation to worship God. You know, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. So there are different seasons in the liturgical season of Lent now uses purple, which sort of, in certain hues, can look like pride blood, so the blood of Christ, yes. But purple is also a royal color. You know, only the, only the, only the Caesar could afford to wear purple in the early days. Where they got them. They probably just robbed the Caesar. Things that are the church Caesar went bye-bye. And the purple was then reserved, you know, for celebrating the mass, right? Uh, it's a kingly color. So the king is coming. King is returning. In Advent, we wear purple. In Lent, we wear purple sort of in anticipation. You know, it's, it's a dark color as well. The dark of nights, we're waiting for the light of day to come. Why white is used in Christmas and Easter. It's sort of the light of the world has come now. And then green, you know, we wear that in that ordinary time. We are trying to configure ourselves in the image of Christ. The green's the color of growth, another color of the Holy Spirit as well, working within us. Uh, red is a more obvious color for blood. So the martyrs, right? Uh, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit, you know, the fire of the Holy Spirit as well. Every color is, again, meant to attune us mystery that is before us. You know, we believe as Catholics, we are both body and soul, and we worship. You know, heart, mind, and strength with our whole heart, our whole mind, our, our, everything that we are, we put in worship of God. So that includes sights and colors, sound and smell, 
That's, oh, I forgot the incense. Uh, that's okay, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh, darn. I forgot the incense. But yeah, we put everything disposal you know, when we worship. Like I said, I uh, kiss the bride. And it's the wedding feast of heaven and earth. So we've come into the entrance. You know, every entrance into mass is, is that entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. We're almost there to Palm Sunday now. You know, where you can almost imagine it. All of Israel is starting to go, is going on pilgrimage for the Passover. They have to go to Jerusalem to go see the Passover. And so all of them are sort of slowly gathering and gathering and gathering and entering in to Jerusalem with Jesus. And you think about it, that same pilgrimage is happening on a grand scale throughout all of time in history. The saints of God are gradually, gradually, gradually joining in this grand, you know, the saints go marching in, to, you know, to the, to the new Jerusalem and have Jesus leading them up. Uh, there's also this idea of triumph, which the early church took on with, you know, the, the acolyte that will lead the procession with the cross. Okay, the candles being brought in. Sometimes different banners might be joined in bigger, you know, deals. Uh, this long procession in. It's a triumph. Uh, triumph was celebrated in the ancient Roman world when Caesar, one of his generals, would win a victory. And he would bring all the spoils of war back with him and march them in with him. And march in these paintings with the sign of victory, you know, how they won the victory. So in the church, we have the truest triumph. The greatest victory has been won for us. We march in behind the crucifix, you know, that greatest image of what victory, the victory of God. And we march in, you know, with all those newfound spoils of war, uh, which, you know, are us. We, we are, you know, God's spoils. We are his, his precious gifts that he has won back. From, from the devil. So there's sort of this idea of a triumph marching into the city uh, beneath an arch. That's why there's a lot of arches in old churches. You march through the arch, this victorious arch, uh, into the victory, victorious parade of God. All that is the entrance. <laughs> Wonderful. And then we begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a moment that I love whenever I baptize, you know, especially the infants. Uh, the, the liturgy actually doesn't start with the sign of the cross. And people always are like, no, 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 no. There's a moment when we mark the child for the first time with the cross. That's sort of the first time we make that sign of the cross. So, yep, we're talking about you. And so, you know, every time we make the sign of the cross, we're kind of going back to our baptism. We're going back to that moment when we were marked, when we were claimed by the victory of God. And so that's why, again, we do always begin all good things with prayer and especially in, with the sign of the cross that was made over our baptism. Sort of the first thing uh, that was applied to us, the first moment Jesus touched us in his church. So we return to that. Then, uh, a longer greeting, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all and with your spirit. So a lot of those greetings come right out of St. Paul and his letters to all the Christian churches. But the kind of the main idea, right, is the Lord be with you. And that's really the main idea of the entire plan of God, that God wants to be with us. Garden of Eden. God walked with them in the cool of the evening, or they left him, left the path. And throughout the many promises of the Old Testament, it's always, I will be with you. Emmanuel is God with us. So it's, it's a short little summary of everything that God wants for us. The Lord be with you. Emmanuel. Go ahead. Sure. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Why? Why would they do that? Well... It's the Hebrew fault. <laughs> uh, a lot of the way we say things are based in um, Semitisms, uh, sort of the way Semitic languages like Hebrew, the way you say things. Because Jesus came into this world and he chose the chosen people and the way they say things. And so there's kind of this, uh, uh, I'm not going to draw 
it's just going to confuse me more. There, whenever you're translating then from the language that Jesus actually spoke, there's always kind of two schools of thought. You either, you know, say kind of the literally what's said word for word, or you say sort of the idea. So literally, the way you say and also with you is and with your soul and with your spirit. And we've gone back to that. And there's a couple other just places you'll see in here where it's where it's just the church realized in that translation when it's and also with you, there's something that's lost in that translation. You really need to take it back. Obviously, you can't do that with everything because then there's some really weird, like funky language things that happen. But and with your spirits, you know, there's there's sort of something more than just saying and also with you. When you guys respond to, to the priest and with your spirit. Because you're not just responding to me, the priest, in this in this moment, right? The priest has received a special character by his ordination, a special spirit of Christ. So Jesus says to his apostles, whoever receives you, receives me. Receives me, receives the one who sent me. And that chain goes down through the ages that when you have a priest here, you know, you have an altar priestess, another Christ. So you're really speaking to Christ as well as the priest when you say that. And that's what the church sort of you know, realized was kind of lost in translation and went back to. So sorry about that. <laughs> you may not have noticed this yet. There's a new there's new words of uh, absolution and confession now. Every priest is struggling with that. They're kind of going through and just revamping all this stuff. Kind of thinking a little deep. Now it's been like 40 years since they translated this stuff. It's all about, you know, trying to make sure we have you know, the key, the key. Jesus, why did you choose Hebrew, though? It's like, one of my buddies is like, it's not even a language. It's like, here we go. So you're speaking to, to Jesus in the priest as well. Um, well. We'll see that you actually experience Jesus in four different places in the Mass, in the priest. Yes, maybe you'd say for most obviously in the Eucharist, most obviously, right? Also in the word that is preached are the words of Jesus, Jesus in that word, and then in each other. Talk about the experience of Christ in one another, because each and every one of you as well, the virtue of baptism has been configured, configured to Christ in a special way. So we begin, though, Mass in kind of an odd way with an act of penitence. Okay, we start by, you know, brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins. Kind of an odd way to begin a joyful wedding celebration, right? But when we do that, we are entering into the long history, really, of the Old Testament, of waiting for a Savior. You know, really, the whole point of God waiting to send his Son is to realize how much we need a Savior, how much we need God with us. And, you know, Jesus talks many times about... You know, the one, the, the tax collector, right, who looks, does, can't even look up to heaven, but beats his breast, right? You know, we're going to beat our breasts three times in this prayer, right, as that tax collector, you know, humbly coming before the Lord. That's how he wants us to pray. You know, being a sinner is really our ticket uh, into to Jesus, right? He ate and drank with sinners, right? Kind of our ticket in. So it's that key beginning of humility. Getting in humility and that fear of the Lord sort of opens us up then to what God has planned for us. So that's really why we begin by confessing our sins. So you notice, confess to Almighty God. We also make sort of a public confession to our brothers and sisters at that moment. And that's also straight out of um, a document that I'll uh, note again. It's called the Didache. It's in here somewhere in this packet. Uh, it's the teaching that, in in theory, might even go back to the apostles themselves. Apostles might have even written some of it. And it talks about before you come to worship God, you know, we always confess our sins in public. <laughs> so not naming them out loud necessarily, but definitely naming them in our hearts. As, again, that key through humility. You know, humility is such an important key in the Christian life. The appeal to all the angels and saints. We'll talk about the angels and saints a little bit. 
The Almighty God, have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. That is, is called a minor absolution. Minor absolution. Major absolution happens in confession, right? Forgiveness of mortal sins. When we sort of disconnected us to the body of Christ. But when we come to Mass, and we're still a part of the body of Christ, maybe we haven't sinned mortally, but we've sinned venially. We have this weakness on the soul. You know, that sin, venial sin, is forgiven in that moment. You know, making us truly worthy to stand here. You know, No matter how weak or unworthy we may feel, we're going to see a lot of that language as well, that you know, we are unworthy, and yet Jesus makes us worthy. Stand with him. So there's sort of a, a forgiveness of sins that happens to just get us ready to celebrate these mysteries. That's also why during Easter, especially, uh, the, the priest gets to go around and sprinkle everyone with the holy water. Favorite thing ever. <laughs> Revenge. But, uh, you know, that goes back, right, to even the, the Mount Sinai and Moses who sprinkled the blood of the covenant on the people who consecrated them as the people of God. All of us remembering that we too have been consecrated, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Glad we don't sprinkle you with blood, though, in that moment. <laughs> See, part of that translation, do we translate things word for word, symbol for symbol, gesture for gesture, or let's take the idea, right? And just that. So with that, we, we dive into the, the glory. And one of the things I want you to notice as well is the Mass goes through every part of the life of Jesus. Every, every part. So here in the beginning of Mass, we pray the Gloria, you know, only on Sunday and the big feast day. But it starts, glory to God in the highest, right? Honor peace to people of goodwill. Guys, anyone here, you know, want to venture, you know, where we find that in the Bible? Glory to God in the highest on earth. What is it? It is Christmas. It's the angels there in the night with the shepherds. And the song that they hear singing, you know, it's, it's the Christmas moment, right? So we've sort of walked through the Old Testament in that longing for Christ. You know, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. You know, send your Messiah, send your Christ. We've gone through that longing, that need for a Savior, and then God bursts in, glory to God in the highest. Uh, I love, my favorite glory of all is Easter Vigil which you'll see, um, you know, we don't ring the bells. You know, we're going to talk about bells here a little bit. The idea of bells, what they bring to worship. We don't ring the bells all throughout the three days of Jesus' passion and death. And then when the resurrection brings it, breaks in, when we sing the Gloria, we just ring them the whole entire time. It's, it's heaven, you know, breaking into earth. That moment of Christmas when the word is made flesh. So that's really what this whole Gloria prayer is all about, is the heaven... Breaking into earth, it's the Christmas, it's Jesus born for us, the Savior of the world. Okay, and then finally, to, to end this first part of Mass, you know, just introducing us into the Mass, getting us into it, we have a prayer called the Collect. The Collect. Which kind of means what it sounds like. The priest, there's a little description there. Collects the prayers of the faithful. You know, actually, the priest says, Let us pray. It's supposed to make a little pause. Myself, I probably won't pause long enough. I should be silent in prayer, except at about 9 30 mass when there's lots of babies praying. <laughs> but they're praying in a way as well, right? But that moment, that kind of brief pause, just to bring you know, what you are praying for in this mass, you know, to the forefront of your mind. And the priest collects that, and he'll offer this prayer, which talks about whatever we're celebrating that day. You know, the fifth Sunday of Lent, Easter, a saint's day. Reference it always, you know, through Christ, through the Father, in the Holy Spirit. The language of the church is always to the Father. We have a destiny. You know, through the Son, we have an identity. In him, as, as brothers, he gives us a new identity when we're made into his body. And in the Holy Spirit, we have a mission. We have, uh, you know, a motive, a power behind it. Gives our prayer effect. So it's always to the Father, to the Son, in the Holy Spirit. Establishing our, our destiny, our identity, and our mission. Constant. 
And without understanding that, it, it, it works in you, though. A lot of times you don't understand what's even going on in church, but the language, just even even the, the structure of the prayer kind of builds in us something, even sometimes subconsciously, for being built up for that destiny, that mission. Okay, we'll do the liturgy of the word, take a little break um, then, and if there's any questions as well. You know, don't don't be afraid to shoot them up. That's where we sit down. Okay, so the our Protestant brethren, right? They love the word of God, and so they 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 you know gave us sitting down so we can thank them for that. So gave us pews to sit and and kind of in a, a greater gesture of taking in the word of so there's, there is something almost to that I kind of like. Uh, but, you know, Jesus telling, you know, the apostles, go and have the people sit in groups of 50 and 100, right? We sit down to receive, okay, not to just relax, zone out, right? <laughs> sit down to engage as students in the classroom. So the biblical readings. Um, one thing to note, you know, I kind of made a little all caps, quick outline of the kind of the four main things that are read in sequence. You know, the Old Testament giving us the promises, the way God was setting this all up. The responsorial psalm, which sort of is a response of prayer. Jesus would have memorized all the psalms. He would have memorized these 150 songs. I tell my students, though, you know, I bet you could give me 150 different lyrics, 150 different songs. If we, if we were here long enough, you could probably think up, you know, maybe not the whole song, but at least, you know, 150. So this is what they, you know, dedicated their lives. There's another tradition as well that Jesus actually prayed all the Psalms on his way to the throne. And some of that was just in the Passover liturgy. You know, you pray a lot of Psalms when you celebrate the Passover. But then also a lot of his quotes as he comes to the end are all from the Psalms. So it almost becomes clear that his inner dialogue with his father is all the Psalms. So whenever we pray the Psalms, we are praying the, the prayer of Jesus, the way Jesus prayed. And in fact, that's the best way to understand the Psalms. Sometimes they're, they're sort of obscure. They're always talking about enemies and everyone's surrounding me and everything's terrible. It, it's always best to, you know, put Jesus, Jesus as the one who is praying this Psalm. Kind of imagine, okay, what then is this Psalm really about? You know, about the cross. And that hope of resurrection and the new life that is beyond. So we make that response of our whole selves in that psalm. And then we get to the New Testament, the second reading, and we'll read from some of the letters of the apostles. Um, again, from that quote from Justin Martyr, you know, when they gather on the Lord's Day, you know, they read from the memoir, the memoirs of the apostles, he called. That could have included the gospels as well, because John. Right, but we read of you know how we ought to behave in the house of God. Those letters are especially about Christian living, you know, strengthening our mission. So finally, we get to the gospel, and so the gospel is different, right? We we stand for the gospel. Uh, stands is the gesture, even from the ancient world, when the king has entered in, right? So when the king enters, stand. And that's why we sometimes will have that procession, book of the gospel, with the lights, the candles, always kind of bearing the presence of God, fire, being a, an ancient symbol of the presence of God. We stand because this word is truly about to be given to us. There's a great line in the catechism and from earlier church documents that says that the church venerates the word of God just as she venerates the body of Christ. I think we're pretty used to as Catholics venerating the body of Christ. You know, you're going to see a lot of things that I do to make sure not even a crumb falls to the ground in vain. But do we kind of do the same thing to make sure not even a word, not even a syllable escapes our ears? Here, taking the question of the gospel. That's why there's so much fanfare ahead of time. You know, the ha 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 ha. I don't want to say the word, right? Because uh, it's Lent, so we don't say the A word. That, that, that word, that, that, that word, we don't say that word. During Lent, uh, that word is 
a key word in the Passover Psalms, the Psalms that are prayed at Passover. They're called the Hallel Psalms. I can say that. I won't say the, the second half of that word. Hallel. Imagine. Yeah. Those Psalms. So we're saving those Psalms and that word for Easter, for the new Passover to break in. And then we'll say it a million times, right? So that's why we sort of hide that word during Lent. We're waiting for the new Passover to come, the Passover of the Lord, the Passover that's Easter. So again, the Lord be with you and with your spirits. Again, it's not just you're not just talking to the priests. Addressing well, the spirits is in the priests, spirit of the Lord, on him in a special way. And we trace again that cross, kind of same thing at the beginning of Mass. Same thing now over the minds. A lot of times you go over the lips and over the heart. We're making that threefold prayer that this word again instill itself in our minds, that we would speak it with our lips, that we treasure it in our hearts. Again, so much fanfare. All the external things are meant to drive the internal, though. Now, if they're not good on their own, if there's nothing going on inside, the, all these things are for nothing, right? But it's meant to drive us towards really care, taking care not to let a single word. All the Gospel of the Lord, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And then everyone sits down again. We have the best part. Um, a couple, just a couple of things on the homily. Uh, there's apparently there's a bunch of Greek words for conversation. They don't just say, or yeah, I'm having a chat. Having a talk, a uh, heart to heart, right? There's a lot of different ways we could say conversation as well. A homily or homilea is apparently the type of conversation that you would have around the dinner table in the Greek speaking world. Kind of when you're, you know, just finished with the with the meal and now you're talking about, you know, what you do today, what are we looking forward to tomorrow, and just swapping stories. That's homilea. So it's kind of neat that this is the word we used for this sort of conversation that we're having around the word of God and around his supper of the Lord. It's this dinner conversation. You might say, Father, it doesn't, doesn't ever feel like a conversation. Uh, like you're preaching at us, you know, and that's, that may be true. Maybe I could do better, you know, engaging you guys, kind of making it feel like more of a conversation. At the same time, though, no matter, you know, how bad I do, at the homily, the conversation isn't actually between you and me. It's a conversation that's happening in this moment between you and God, between you and Christ. It needs to be happening in your heart. The priest is there to sort of bring up dinner conversation, you know? So you kind of have three friends at dinner. I was always terrible at the one-on-one, -on -one, but if I had a third person with me who's sort of bringing up conversations, bringing up things to kind of talk about, it went a whole lot smoother, right? Three is coming. So, it's kind of the same deal. The priest is bringing up dinner conversation you to have between you and God. And so in that homily, you know, it was also usually a little time of silence afterwards. That's really bring that out. Able with the Lord. Talk to him. After that, we then move into the profession of faith. All of us stand again. And what's our, what's our response? A lot of the liturgy is always this conversation that's happening back and forth. So God has just spoken to us a whole lot. God is the one who always moves first. But then faith involves this response, us speaking back to God. And so the profession of faith, we have the time for that to, to come out. So we profess, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You know, that creed of the church throughout the ages. Uh, in, in a way, this is sort of the church's fight song. You know, uh, going into battle, going to be martyred, you know, believe in God, Father, Son. Profess that together as that response of faith. And we also see I believe, right, which has this sort of this this dual dual uh, meaning behind it, right? Number one, it's, you know, we have to bring our personal. You know, no one can supply, no, no one can replace, you know, that own personal faith given to you by God. And at the same time, when we say I believe, but we use one voice, it's it's the church as one body in Christ that believes. We speak in the voice of the whole church. 
so again, a, a lot of the, the language of the mass is meant to, to kind of present those two realities that we have to bring ourselves into it, but at the same time, we are also a part of something bigger that's that's happening here. Final part of the liturgy of the word, after establishing our trust in God, you know, to believe, you know, more than just there's, there's sort of three senses of belief, three ways you could say believe, especially in kind of the ancient language of the church. You can say, I believe that something exists. I believe that God exists. I believe that we have a new Nebraska football coach. It's another thing to say, I believe that person. You know, I believe God. I believe that God speaks to you. I believe that our new coach, you know. Believe yet, right? But then it's a whole other step to believe in something. So that, that language of believing in, entrusting your whole self to that person. You know, you can believe that what someone says is true and, you know, you trust them. But it's a whole other step to be like, no, I, I entrust my entire life to this. You are the one I'm following. You are the one I, I give my life for. So, again, it's a whole other step for those Husker players to, to sort of buy in to what the new coach is saying, to believe in him, right? And that's a step all of us need to make as well when it comes to our Lord, to, to buy into, to entrust our life. So that's what we say when we profess the and then finally, the prayers of the faithful, um, you know, throughout the scriptures, the prayers of the faithful, they, they come right out from, from those very words, especially two places I'm thinking of, you know, Jesus's high priestly prayer. Uh, it's John 17, if you want to write it right next to it there and read it, it's basically the prayers of the faithful, sort of going through, you know, the whole, all the different levels of the church, you know, the prayers of the faithful sort of always start with like the Pope. The church throughout the world, and they kind of boil down, you know, to the nation, to our community, to individuals, to the faithful departed. Um, the the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple is, is sort of another one. Uh, one Kings eight. Maybe write that down. Read it. Read it on your own. Um, these great moments uh, when prayer is just laid out before God, um, and it's just a similar thing happening here. You know, it's the new temple that we're in. That is being dedicated before eyes, the temple of Christ's body. And it's Jesus making that high priestly prayer again uh, when he prayed the night before he suffered. It's kind of the last words of Jesus at the Last Supper, high priestly prayer. And one of the last things he says in his last words, really remarkable, he says, Father, I pray not just for these, and he's talking about his 12 apostles, I pray for all those who will believe through them, which is us. Like Jesus very intentionally is speaking of us in that moment on the night before he incredible thing so we'll take a quick break guys gather some uh if you have any questions up till now just five minutes or so we'll come back and we'll dive into the liturgy of 